Uh, th- <laughs> thanks for that transition into marriage uh, sermon. <laughs> so I was like, I don't know how to get it. Like, you just go, you just go right into it, right? Um, so the, the text there, if you don't know what gravity is, I know there's a few kind of new faces I saw. Gravity is a small group discussion for middle schoolers that meets in the room right there. Um, especially today, as, as you'll see, it might be a good idea for some of your middle schoolers uh, to go into there. Um, today, we are in week two of a series on marriage, relationships, and love. And we're looking at it through the lens of the Old Testament uh, in a book that is called Song of Songs, or as some of your Bibles might say, the Song of Solomon. Uh, it's a book that if you've read it before, you might be surprised to find it in the Bible. Uh, it is graphic at times. It might make you blush as you read it. You might think, why are we reading this in church? Uh, but it, it is a book that I am so happy is in the Bible. Uh, because in a culture, in a world that is, that is very much flippant about marriage now, that very much dis- disregards what marriage is, I'm so glad and happy that we have a book of the Song of Songs that, that tells the power and the sacredness of what marriage can be. And so last week, Mike began the series uh, in the first week, and he said, he talked about the attraction phase of relationships. Uh, and he looked at really three questions in chapter one, where he said, we often look at what do we want? And then he said, what, what do we need? And then we look at what does God want? And he said, maybe we should flip that on its head and, and actually start with that, that third question, which is what does God want? And so today is the day you, maybe you've been waiting for. Uh, today is maybe the day that you've dreaded, if you know that there's a marriage love series happening at church. Uh, today we talk about sex. Uh, today we talk about uh, intimacy. And uh, I know this is a topic that can make us a little squirmy in our seats, especially in church. Uh, even though when we look at the TV and we do things, it's, it's much more graphic than anything that we're going to talk about today. I'll just tell you that. Um, but it makes us a little uncomfortable. And so I want to kind of make sure that we're all loose and we're all feeling a little comfortable. And so I, I wanted to show you a couple memes that I found this week. This doesn't have to do with the topic, uh, but it is about marriage. Um, and so there's six pictures here, six memes. I'm sure you've seen these online before, these kind of things, um, just to get us maybe a little comfortable. All right. So the first one is, is that marriage is all about compromise. Um, I just, I love that picture of just the hidden superhero cake uh, behind the bridal cake. Um, I was actually allowed to have a little small groom's cake at our wedding, like a Florida gator cake, uh, which is really cool. So we started the same kind of way as that. Um, uh, here's the second one. When dad has a cold and then when mom has one. I thought that was good. Uh, my whole family, we've had colds like this week, and I'm, you might hear me a little bit. I'm still kind of getting over it. Uh, if I cough a little bit, I, I apologize. Uh, but I, I'm just convinced that, that dads and men just have worse colds. I'm just like, I'm convinced of that. Like, it, it's got to be worse, or just bigger babies, whatever, whatever you all want to say. Uh, I like this third one a lot. Uh, my wife made me coffee this morning and winked at me when she handed me the cup. I've never been more scared of a drink in all my life. <laughs> yeah. If you've been married over a couple years, you get it, right? Um, here's a fourth one. Before you marry a person, you should make them use a computer with slow internet to see who they really are. <laughs> I said the same thing about the game of Monopoly. If you play Monopoly with someone, I mean, their character really comes out by the end of that game. Uh, here's the fifth one. When you thought you were done arguing with your man, but then you hear him mumble something under his breath. <laughs> Cats are evil, man. I just like, I'm sure that's just the natural look of a cat too. Uh, last one, uh, seven years of marriage versus two months of marriage. That was good. The royal couples, right? The puppy eyes of the, of the two months 
of marriage. And, you know, you know, I think it's good to laugh. It's good to find some humor in marriage. Uh, marriage is a very serious thing, for sure. It's the most important relationship we have in our lives beyond the relationship with God. Uh, but it's good to find joy. It's good to find laughter. And, uh, and it's good to find a little bit of maybe comfortability in a, in a topic like this today. And so I wanted to begin by telling you a story uh, that I think will really, really set the perspective of this topic. Um, so it's, it's a story about a photographer. And the photographer, he's out and he's taking pictures of, of every, everything that he sees, of landscapes and, and of animals. And he comes across this village that is in the middle of nowhere. And, and in the, kind of the middle of this village, there, there's a pond that he sees some kids swimming in. And it's been a, it's been a long day. It's been a hot day. He, he's tired from everything that's been going on. And so he decides that he's going to cool off. He's going to swim with some of these kids. And so he gets into the village and, and everyone seems to be uh, pretty happy. They greet him. You know, they wave at him. It seems to be a peaceful village. And so he goes into it and he goes into the pond and he goes about waist deep and, and cools off just from his long day. And so he looks around and, there, and there's kids, as I said, they're, they're playing in the water uh, there are some women that are, that are washing some clothes kind of right there on the shoreline. Uh, there are uh, those kind of grass huts. You know, it's a very peaceful, uh, quaint village. And then out of nowhere, there's an alligator that comes out of this pond. And the, and the alligator, he grabs one of these kids and pulls the kid back into the water. And so the photographer is terrified. He is shocked. And he sees splashing and he sees water going everywhere. And there's turning and there's twisting. And before he knows it, this alligator has pulled the leg off this kid clean off. And so he's shocked. He, he runs out of the water, obviously, for his own safety, and he's running over to the kid. And he notices something weird, because as he gets kind of near the kid and he's looking at the villagers, they don't seem to be reacting. You know, they, they see what happens, and they're kind of bringing him out of the water, but no one seems terrified. No one seems shocked. And so he gets over, and he's just like, what's wrong with you people? Like, don't you see that this kid just lost his leg? Like, we, he needs help. We need to help him. And then he notices something about the villagers. He looks to his left and, well, th that guy's lost his leg. And he looks to the right and that woman has an arm missing. And, and this person over here, he's, they're kind of missing a chunk of their side. Well, I mean, actually every villager, it seems like has a scar or is missing a limb. And he's like, don't you people understand? Like these alligators, they're killing you. And it's at that point that an elderly woman pipes up and she says, shh, you know, we don't talk about alligators here. And I heard that story, and I'm like, what a, what a perfect image for how the church has responded about sex. And so often the church has said, shh, you know, we don't talk about that here. It's not appropriate. It's not godly. It's not holy. And, you know, and if we maybe looked out in this room and we could see the physical scars that sexuality has had in this room, maybe very few of us would be scar-free. Maybe very few of us would have all of our limbs if you want to go that far, but uh, sexuality has caused pain and it's caused scars for a lot of people. And let, it seems like the church for years and years has said, shh, we don't talk about that. You know, that's something we don't discuss in church. And the unfortunate thing is, is as the church has done that, as the church has largely remained silent, the world cannot talk about it enough. Uh, we are flooded with it wherever we go into this world. And it shouldn't surprise us that as we step back and we look at sexuality within the world and we look at it within the church, well, it doesn't look too far apart. It looks very, maybe similar. You know, the other problem that I see too is that when the church does talk about it, a lot of times it comes down to one simple thing, which is simply don't have sex until you're married. And the rest of it, we don't want to talk about anything else. Like don't do it until you're married. And, and while I, I, see, I see that as a worthwhile, a worthwhile thing, I see that as a God-driven thing, I'm just going to tell you that I think it's very incomplete, um, and it's not very persuasive. Um, and so today, 
uh, we're going to talk about it. Uh, we're we're going to get away from just the, the easy way out of saying, shh, we don't talk about that. And we're going to talk about it here. And, and I think Grace has done a pretty good job in the past of doing that. I know Mike has brought up this issue, and that's what he wanted me to bring it up this morning to give kind of a different voice to this. But it's important to bring this up because this topic, sexuality, it influences every person in this room. Every person is affected by it in one way or another. And I believe that's something that is so powerful, so intoxicating, that God has more to say about it than simply don't do it until you're married. That God has more to say about it, and he does in this book of Song of Songs. And so today, I hope you begin to see this, is that God designed sex within a marriage not to punish us, right? Not to give us some kind of rule that, that, is, that is hard to follow, but to protect us and give us the ideal and best form of it, all right? Because you see, outside of marriage, and what I've seen is that it can lead to pain, it can lead to scars, but within marriage, it can be a beautiful thing. It can be an amazing thing. It can be a union that you don't have with no one else in this world but your spouse, and so Song of Songs, it has a very interesting history. I'll just tell you that. And, and Mike kind of brought this up a little bit last week too when he talked about how, how Song of Songs was barely in the canon. They were discussing, you know, should we put this book or not? Like it was kind of a weird book. And, and so most of the history of Song of Songs from the beginning of where the time of Jesus all the way up until really about the 18th century, people viewed it as an allegory. And you've heard that word. I'm sure most of you know what that means. So it, it doesn't mean the literal meaning of it. It means something different. And so they viewed it as an allegory of God's love for his people. Now, if you've read Song of Songs, I'm just going to say, like, it gets really weird if you view it like that. It gets really strange. Um, and you might say, like, I don't, I don't want God loving me in that way. Like, and and you, some of the stuff we'll read today, you'll see how, like, it's very hard to kind of make that jump. And so after a while, like, people started viewing it. And, and that, I think a lot of that came from that idea of, like, shh, like, we don't, ugh, maybe it means something different, right? We hope it means something different. But so modern-wise, like, we, we now view this as a love poem, which I think is what it originally was meant to be read as. So it's a love poem between a husband and a wife. It talks about intimacy and sexuality and attraction and the courtship phase. And all of that stuff is, is in Song of Songs. And so that's how we're going to treat it. So we're going to be in chapter four. If you want to follow along, we're going to be reading most of the chapter today. So we're going to be kind of digging through this verse by verse. So most of chapter four. Uh, in chapter three, uh, we get the picture of a wedding scene. Uh, we get the picture of a wedding. And so in chapter four, what we really get is the night of the wedding. All right, so this is, this is a peek into kind of the chamber of where the, the wife and husband now are. Uh, and I got to give you a little bit of, of a scene here because ancient Jewish weddings are, are really different than modern weddings. Um, you've all been to a modern wedding, I'm sure. And you, and you go and there's a ceremony, you know, there's 15, 20 minute ceremony. Uh, you go and, and then, and then you eat and, and then you dance and then it's two or three hours long and then everybody leaves. Uh, the ancient Jewish weddings were, were very different. Uh, there's a lot that goes into this about dowries and contracts that I don't want to get into, but the actual wedding itself, and it would be like a week long. It would be a crazy thing. Maybe you remember the wedding of Cana where Jesus was at and they, they, they needed wine. It was because, man, this was days and days and days. They needed a week's worth of wine. And so the weddings were different. And so what would happen is that the bride would be brought to the groom. It would, she'd be brought to the groom's house, that is, and they would begin the wedding. And there would be a feast. There would be a celebration. And at some point there in the evening, the bride and groom, they would begin to read their commitments together. It was kind of different than vows, but they read commitments over wine. Maybe you've seen Jewish weddings where they like, have the glass and they stomp on it. Mazel tov. It, it's kind of this idea of, of, that, of that's what would happen. And so after those commitments were read, this is where the awkward part comes in. Because while everyone else waited around, they went and consummated the marriage. And we all just kind of stood there and waited for it to happen. 
I mean, and that's crazy to think about nowadays, but that's how they did it. And so they would consummate the marriage. They would come out, and again, ancient times, it's, it's different, with sheets in hand to prove her virginity. They would give it to the families, and then the, the feast and the celebration would continue. I mean, can you imagine doing that? I mean, that's crazy to think about, but this is how they did weddings. The consummation part, that part was such the pinnacle of the wedding. That's what really what sealed the marriage. And so... This is the scene that we enter in Song of Songs chapter 4, so you can imagine what we're about to read, okay? Uh, this is where we enter into this, a peek into the scene, okay? Song of Songs chapter 4, verse 1. You're all buckled up? You ready? All right. <coughs> uh, the, the husband is speaking for the, the majority of this scene, all right? So just know that. it starts. Some of your Bibles might say he. It says, how beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from the hills of Gilead. So he begins by saying, you are beautiful. You are incredible. I love everything about you. And he talks about the veil. That means they're still, she's still wearing the wedding garb. The veil is still there. And he says, your eyes are like doves. There's a lot of animal imagery here happens. It's this ancient poetry. And then he says the line that will just knock your wives over. He says, your hair is like a flock of goats descending from the hills of Gilead. Uh, it, was a, it was a complimentary thing back then. I don't know if it would work nowadays, but here, here's the idea here. If, if, you, if you're standing far away and you picture a hill and you see goats that are streaming down the hill, and maybe it, you don't really see the actual goats, but just kind of a stream of them. It's, it's the idea that her hair is lush. It is flowing. It's even has some curves to it. It's a very complimentary thing. It's, it's weird to say, I know for modern wise, but, but this was a cool thing. And it basically saying, ma'am, your hair even captures my attention. Uh, the guy's taking time, and you can see this as, as we move through this. He starts at the top of her body and is, and is moving downward here. All right, number, number two, verse two. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn, coming up from the washing. Each has its twin. Not one of them is alone. Uh, in other words, he's like, your teeth are white, and you have all of them. I'm, that's incredible. Uh, Ancient dental hygiene would be very different than modern times, and so this would be a kind of a cool thing. You got all your teeth, and they're white. They're, they're, it's great. Uh, he, finds, he finds beauty everywhere in his wife, and it's kind of a cool thing as you see him working, working downward. Uh, this also tells you that she's smiling, right? Like, you don't see teeth unless the wife is smiling. Um, and so that gives you the demeanor of not just the husband, who is obviously excited and is delighting in his wife, but the demeanor of the wife as well, who's not bashful in a sense, or is not shameful, but is, but is proud and is standing there as, his, as her husband delights in her. All right, look at verse three. Your lips are like scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like halves of a pomegranate. Um, he continues describing her face and then talks about the color of her lips even. And I, I think what's going on here with the temples and the pomegranates, I had to read a little bit of what's going on there, but it's talking about her complexion. So I don't think she actually has the complexion of, of, of a red skin here, which is what a pomegranate would look like. But I'm imagining that she's blushing here. Uh, again, and this is not shameful blushing, right? She's smiling. It, it's proud, but it, man, she's getting heaped on with, with affection here. Uh, and maybe it's making her her more confident, but man, she's blushing in the, in the moment of what this is. Uh, look at verse four. Uh, this maybe is the weirdest one of all of them. Uh, your neck is like the tower of David, uh, built with courses of stone, and it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. 
when I first read this, I was thinking like, of like when, you know, when those bruising linebackers, like we're at Super Bowl Sunday and you have those big old necks and like the big old trap muscles. And I'm like, that's not really appealing at all. I don't know if your neck looked like that, but, but he's saying not that, you're, not that your neck looked like a, like a crazy tower, but that your neck has the value of a tower of David. All right, you see the difference there? Not that it looks like it, but it has the value of the Tower of David. That is that it is dignified, it is elegant. He's saying, man, it, it's so incredible that even the shields of warriors would hang upon it. And I know it's different. It's weird how, how they speak back then, but that's kind of what he's getting at. Uh, he continues moving downward here. Your breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle that browse among the lilies. Uh, you can understand why he's complimenting this part of her body, I'm sure. I don't have to explain that. Not much has changed in modern culture, but... <laughs> I'm going to let you use your imagination here on this, this image. I'm just like, I'm not going to explain it. Um, I could tell you a lot of things, but I'm not going to. So use your imagination on what's going on here. Uh, verse six, skip ahead. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee, I'll go to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of incense. Uh, and, and I really love this line. The more I've read Song of Song chapter four, I really, this line kind of stuck out to me because I, I think he's kind of losing himself in the moment here. Because uh, he stops describing her body and then he says, you know, for all eternity... Here's what I'm about to do. I'll go to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of incense. And you can see why this follows verse five, right? Uh, and, and he loses in place. And, and what happens here is that you have to look at chapter two, verse 17, which is where uh, the wife here actually invites him in the same kind of way. She says, I want you to come to the mountain of myrrh. I want you to come to the hill of incense. It's not a physical location, but she's physically inviting him to her. And at this point, the, the, the husband is saying, for all eternity, I'm coming. You know, it's this kind of playful banter that's going on between the husband and the wife here in verse six. And then in verse seven, uh, a great line, he says, you are altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no flaw in you. You know, every wife, every woman understands that line. This is not a line that needs explained. That as a husband is is very much looking and describing her body, he, he concludes there is no flaw in you. I think every wife would want to hear that from her husband. This is, and, and don't misunderstand this to, to think that this woman is somehow perfect, right? That this is somehow the perfect woman, and, and that's why he concludes it. No, he, he's looking through the lens of a husband. He's looking through the lens of what a spouse should look at, where maybe the world sees flaws, maybe the world sees mistakes, but man, you as the husband, you as the wife, you see perfection in your spouse. That's the ideal that we should be striving for. See, this is not Hollywood love. This is not, hey, if you have the perfect body and tan body and washboard abs and muscles and all that, then you can have, no, this is simply, this is the lens of a spouse that says, after I've looked you up and down, then there is no flaw in you, for you are my wife, you are my husband. And so, you know, man, I think we really need to hold this to heart, man. We really need to grasp onto this. Um, wives as well, but I'll pick on men just because I can, but uh, you need to tell your wife that. You need to build your wife up in that way. Uh, we have uh, an ideal that is very unattainable for beauty in this world. And your wife needs the security. She needs the confidence to know that her husband looks at her and says, there is no flaw in you. Husbands, we need to do this for our wives, all right? And it's a powerful moment, isn't it? I mean, this is the most vulnerable moment that people can be in, naked in front of their spouse. And if your spouse concludes there is no flaw in you, that is a powerful, that is a healing thing. Uh, let's look at verse 10 of Song of Songs, chapter 4. Uh, he continues on. He says, How delightful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine, and the fragrance of your perfume more than any spice. 
So the term sister here is not how we think of a sister. It's a term of endearment, just, just so you know that. Um, but he's saying, man, your love is just more pleasing than wine. Your, your perfume, the smell of you is even intoxicating. He continues on in verse 11. Your lips drop sweetness as the honeycomb, my pride. Milk and honey are under your tongue, and the fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. And so they are kissing in this moment, if you didn't realize that. And he's saying, your, your, your lips and your tongue are even as sweet as honey. You can just see that, again, the, the, the lie is just building up in her husband. Uh, verses 12 through 15, I want to kind of put together, because it, it's all really the same thing. So let's read those together. He says, you are a garden locked up, my sister, <coughs> my bride. You are a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with choice fruits, with henna and nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, and with every kind of incense tree, with myrrh and aloes and all the finest spices. You are a garden fountain, a well of flowing water streaming down from Lebanon. So in ancient poetry, a garden and a fountain were very erotic images, if, if you couldn't kind of grasp that just from those verses there. And so he's talking about the sealed up and the locked up fountain. And in other words, it is her virginity that he's talking about. And so in chapters two and chapters three, twice she says something. She says, look, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. And she's speaking sometimes to the daughters of Jerusalem. It's kind of a warning there where she says, don't arouse or awaken love until it so desires. That, that says there's going to be times in our lives where if we're going to want to love, we're going to want to arouse it, we're going to want to awaken it. But she says, don't do it until it is time. And so she's saying, I'm trying to remain chaste. You know, I'm trying to remain a virgin until my wedding night. And he says, you are a locked up, sealed garden. And it's in this moment, after all of this like flattery from her husband, that she speaks one line here. And it's just kind of interesting that through all of this, the man is just speaking, 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 compliments, 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 and she speaks one line. And, and wives, let me just tell you, uh, this line would knock your husbands over, I think, just verbatim if you read it. Um, I think they kind of get what you're talking about here, but let's read this. All right. Verse 16, the one line she says, she says, awake north wind and come south wind. Uh, Blow in my garden that its fragrances may spread everywhere. Let my beloved come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. So she's been saying, look, it's, it's not been time to awaken love, but now it's time to awake. Again, 911, if you say this to your husbands at this point, right? It'll knock them over. Um, if you were saying, like, what is, does that mean what I think it? Yeah, it does mean what you think it means, okay? <laughs> All right, next verse in, in chapter 5, and this will finish up what's going on here. Uh, I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice, and I have eaten my honeycomb and honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. In other words, it's happened. It's past tense here, and the husband just responds with satisfaction and responds with delight. And so you might have squirmed a little bit as we read that. I don't know, hopefully not too much. But, you know, I wish the church would talk more about this. I really do. I wish the church would talk more about Song of Songs chapter 4. Because I think it so, shows the beauty of intimacy in marriage. It shows the ideal form of this within marriage. And it's much more powerful to me than saying, hey, just don't do it until you're married. Because instead it's showing you, look how incredible this union should be. Look how incredible it should be within a marriage and that God designed it in this way. And as I said before, culture has twisted this. They've twisted it in the complete opposite way, saying, look, there's more freedom and there's more fun and there's more excitement outside of marriage. But God is saying, look, I'm the designer of it. And I'm telling you that it is the best and it is the ideal form within marriage, not outside of it. And so here's the point through all this is that sex was designed to be within marriage. God designed it in that way. And it's only there 
where you'll find its ideal form. It's only there where you'll find its ideal form. So again, if you're, if you're single and you're, and you're kind of in that moment of kind of waiting and, and wrestling with this, hold on to that. You know, maybe don't hold on to that rule of don't do it until you're married. Hold on to that, that fact that God designed this to be its best and ideal form within marriage. And that God is not just laying down a rule for you, but he's doing that to protect us, to leave you without scars, to leave you without pain, and to give you what that powerful binding thing is with your husband and your wife together within marriage. And if you're married, man, don't get, don't get distracted. It's so easy to get distracted, to, to, to lose the intentionality within your marriage and start looking elsewhere. And, and maybe there's a worker that is flirting with you, or maybe there's something on the internet, or maybe there's things that are, that are distracting your attention and what you got to see and what you got to remember is, look, it's not better outside of it. It's not better outside of your marriage. What you got with your wife, what you got with your husband is as best as it can get. And you need to need to make it that way. And so that's an ideal form, isn't it? I mean, that's the ideal to get there. And you know, if you've been married, if you're married right now, that, that, that it takes commitment, that it takes intentionality. It takes time. You don't just get there automatically. And so I want to throw out a few really, really quick practical points for you guys, if, for those who are married. Uh, you see, this kind of intimacy is earned, it's not deserved. You get that? This kind of intimacy is, is earned, it's not deserved. Uh, that is to say that, men, if you're being bad husbands, you don't deserve this kind of intimacy. Right? Women, if you're being bad wives, you don't deserve this kind of intimacy. It doesn't just happen because you're married. It's not just like, all right, we're married and, and we have this and everything's great. You know, it takes time, it takes work. Uh, it can be very little things, right? It starts with little things. And I think your wives would tell you this. Look, man, like it takes, if you take out the trash, as she asked you to do, like that, that's, that's a simple thing to start this process. Uh, if you put your clothes in the hamper that she's been asking you for your whole marriage, like that's, that continues this process. Uh, if you buy her flowers just because, if you're telling her how much you love her and how much that you don't find any flaw in her, I'm, I'm telling you, this stuff will happen automatically. It'll be a natural outflowing of you delighting in each other, of you in being intentional within your marriage, working at it every day, every hour. This stuff will happen. It's not forced. It's a natural response. The other thing is that this kind of intimacy is about serving one another. You know, one thing that I thought about it is, as I looked at those two things, aren't those so counter to what the world says that sex is? is that, doesn't the world say that intimacy is, is deserved and not earned? That we all deserve it in some way. Doesn't the world say that, that sex isn't about what we want? That it's, it's, it's a selfish thing. Get what you want. See, God designed this completely the opposite. God says it should be selfless. Look at what 1 Corinthians says. I'm just going to read this. It's, it's not going to be on the screen. But 1 Corinthians 7, verses 4 and 5, it says, The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Um, that's an incredible picture there. If you've really thought about it, that's an incredible picture to say that I release my authority to you, to my spouse. And look, that has to be a 100% commitment on both sides. You gotta understand that. And if you've been in a marriage where it's not been, you'll, you'll see why that's not. It's gotta be a 100% commitment on both sides. Both of you have committed that, that my body is now yours. But that security that you find in that, that confidence that you find in that, that union that you find in that is not like anything else. When you know that there's nothing else that, that draws your attention, but it's only you two, and you have released authority to your spouse. I mean, that's an incredible selfless image. And so part of that says, in 1 Corinthians, after this verse, it says, so it means that you're not depriving each other. 
Um, and so that is part of it. That means that you're working on this, right? Um, and it gets harder as we get older in our marriage and we have kids and multiple kids and, and school and work and everything. And it gets tough. And sometimes you've got to plan it. Uh, sometimes you've got to plan date nights. Sometimes you have to kind of make special efforts for it. You might have to take a Tylenol. I don't know what you have to do, but you might have to do some things <laughs> to get to the point of not depriving each other. Now, with that, with that, all right, with that, it means if you have authority over the other person's body, it means that you also are very sensitive to when the time is not right. So there's both times, right? You're very sensitive when the time is not right. But hopefully in a marriage, and I think the ideal is that is the rarity, not the norm. In an ideal, beautiful marriage, that is the rarity and not the norm. And when that does happen, make sure communication is, is very clear, right? That's important. Now, very, very quickly, one last thing. Uh, this kind of intimacy is a process and not an event. All right, this is not just the wedding night thing. This is not just something that happens in one hour. This is a lifelong thing. This is a marriage that lasts through hours, through days, through weeks, through years. This is a process. And, and I, love, <coughs> I love the Song of Songs because throughout this book, they don't stop delighting in one another. It's not like it's just in the wedding night that years and years go by and, and as we wrinkle and as we get gray hairs and as we age and as our bodies don't hold up like they used to, they continue delighting in each other. And we got to remember that in our marriages. As, as, you know, the world kind of says, physical beauty fades. But the lens that you look at through a wife, through a husband, when you look at your spouse, you still should see no flaw in them. You still should be able to delight in them. And when you do, man, love flourishes. Intimacy flourishes when you delight in one another and you look through that lens. You know, with a topic like sex and intimacy, I, I understand that that can bring up things that can you know, bring up things that happened in your past. It can bring up events and, and things that maybe you're, you're just kind of rattling in your head right now. And, and so I want to say kind of first off as, as we close is, is look, we, we worship a God that has offered grace. And maybe you look at your past and, and it's hard for you to get over some things and, and hard for you to get over some hurdles and, and there's mistakes that you have that, that it's just hard to move past. But look, we have a God that has freely, abundantly offered grace and with open arms, he says, come back. So if that is something that you're struggling with, man, I would encourage you to lay that at the feet of the cross this morning. To lay that at his feet. He's willing and wanting to accept it. Uh, if you're single and you're in this kind of stage of life where, you, where you're struggling with things and maybe you're trying to wait and all these things, I would, I would tell you to hold on to that truth. That that design of marriage, man, it is the perfect union within it. It is the ideal form. If you're married, don't get distracted. Don't get distracted and think something else is better. Because God said, you and your spouse, you have the ideal form, and we can build it together if we delight in one another. All right, let's pray. <clears throat> Father in heaven, I thank you so much for this morning. <clears throat> God, I thank you for the book of Song of Songs and uh, for a book that, that really just kind of lays it out there. Uh, Father, this is something that affects every person in this room in some way. And so I, I pray that uh, these words are not on deaf ears, God, but Father, that we can take these things to heart. God, that in our marriages, we can be intentional, we can delight in the other person, that we can improve the intimacy within our marriage. God, that as singles, that we can, we can look towards that, that future, that we can look towards that you have not just set some kind of punishment, some kind of line, some kind of boundary, God, but you have designed this in a way to protect us, but to give us the best form of it as well. Father, forgive us when we, when we fall short. And God, I thank you for your son and the grace that he shows to us. 
so freely given. Father, we love you and pray these things in your son's name. Amen. All right, you all have a fantastic week. Good Super Bowl tonight. We'll see you next week uh, for week three.